0: Greetings and good day and welcome you relatives. I give you hands with a heart of good feelings. It's good for all of us to be here. And since 1992, this is First Voices Radio and Teokas and Ghost who are sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Osopas or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Esopus in the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. First Forces Radio is produced by Liz Hill. Our technical engineer is the Malcolm Byrne. And we broadcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Bus Spotify, as well as org for archive downloading and listing. Our guest, Jennifer Robin of the Choctaw Nation, is the owner of Ofini Productions. Jennifer is a multi-award-winning producer and radio host and television segment producer. Her weekly two-hour live program, Resilience Radio, presents Native American authors, artists, musicians, storytellers, and activists, and showcases contemporary Native music. She was a broadcaster for Spirit Radio Standing Rock's official station... She's a member of the Native American Journalists Association. And we're talking to Jennifer about the ongoing fires in California. And welcome you, Jennifer Robin of the Choctaw Nation. Thank you for joining us. And you're experiencing climate emergency. In other words, ecological collapse. But we can get all the science we want. But when it comes down to personal experience... You have a different story. Can you tell us about what just happened in California? And I know that you've been in that area of Mariposa County and near the Oak Fire, I think it is. And I know you came very close. Smell the smoke, so to speak. And let's begin with that, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us here on First Voices.
3: I ran into the fire. (laughs) So on the 22nd in the late afternoon, I get a text from our Mariposa County Sheriff's alerts that there is a fire started not too far from me. The next little town, a few miles up the road. I, being a California resident, I kind of went eh, and and went back to business. Um, by that evening, the fire had exploded and evacuation orders uh, uh, were expanded. And my and my main highway off of 140 was closed. So I attended a town hall meeting just to figure out what is going on, because here in Mariposa, when you say you live in town, there's only, you know, let's say 30 houses actually in the little town. Everybody else lives um, in this major vein of Triangle Road and up in the Ponderosa Basin. So when I saw The evacuation map and the fire footprint through the heart of our residential community, I kind of lost my mind. So, after the town hall, there was a fire lit under my hiney, and I called KVMR, excuse me, I called KVMR and said, I need to press pass because this is intense. So the next morning with my press pass, I interviewed um, the fire chief on just kind of where things are at and what's going on. And my main goal with the press pass, having access to all these areas, was to check on tribal member residences. So I pulled over, I talked to the sheriff, I said, how far is safe to go? He said, you have a press pass, do what you want, we're not coming for you. I said, fair enough. Um, one of my first stops was off of uh Carlton Road, Yosemite Bear um, tours was started by Paul Vasquez, and people may remember him from the double rainbow video about a decade or so ago. And I went up to my friend's property, Kevin and Irene Vasquez, Spock, um, and everything was gone. T.O.K.S., and I've never seen anything like this. It was destined, there was nothing decimated they had three structures um, on the property a fifth wheeler, um, an old 75 single wide and a yurt and there was no evidence of anything there so um, a wayward cousin of uh, wayward grand granddaughter Julia Parker Toshina Parker was with me and we just continued up to Jerseydale into the heart of the fire to check on other residences. And when we got to Ursula Jones, the granddaughter of world-renowned basket maker, Julia Parker, I kind of lost my mind. There was charcoal charred chunks of um, debris from the sky on their terrible old wooden stairs. And uh, Tashina opened the door and it was unlocked. And there we saw a Smithsonian showcase of baskets that are over 200 years old and at that point I was ready to throw everything in my car but I was advised hey let's get a hold of Ursula the homeowner and see what we can do so I get back to my house where I have cell service and uh, Tashina heads off to go find better internet and it's eating away at me these these baskets this history this the shared American history was eating away at me. So I called my uh, fire chief friend back and and explained... I had a whole speech ready. And I explained, hey, in the heart of the fire off Jerseydale Road, there's a fleet of baskets. What What can we do? 25 minutes later, there was a sheriff escort waiting for us at the fairgrounds to take us up back in. I could have just gone back with her and my press pass, but I didn't want to... <laughs> endanger ourselves, lose the privilege of press pass, even though I'm taking a caravan. Um, I, and, and, and after all the conversations about these interagency relationships, it was really important for me to do this in the right way. So we drove back up to Jerseydale to best road. And I can text you a, a photo of how close the fire came to these things but we filled my trunk and her trunk with everything from cradle boards to cooking baskets to seed baskets to um, even just prepared um, basket making materials, some redbud. And made it back to my house to rearrange everything and, and get get these invaluable, irreplaceable objects returned to Julia Parker, who is safe on the east side. So through all of this, I know everybody lost a lot. Many people lost everything, but going, asking for help from the authorities was not in my character, but I did it. And being able to retrieve retrieve these items in a safe way, in a respectable way, is one of the proudest moments of my little life
0: here. What... This is Central California, I'm thinking Eastern Central California, but the tribes or the people that live in that area, who are they? I mean, you're listening to, people are listening to this history, this knowledge that's being kept, and and where did you put the baskets after all, Jennifer?
3: Well, we are in Mariposa, the town of Mariposa in Mariposa County, and we are right outside of Yosemite National Park. Yosemite National Park has seven associated tribes that, through time and memoriam, have come into the valley, um, migrated for for summers, and then went head down to lower elevations in the winters. So I am sitting with the Southern Sierra Miwok here in in Mariposa County, in the town of Mariposa, and the the amount of information exchanged over thousands of years on techniques and basket making materials and processing acorns and, and the trade, um, of, of food. We, we would trade a lot of, a lot of things for obsidian because we had no obsidian on this side. So trading grasses that we have access to with, with Bishop tribe, for example, um, they can't grow certain things. We don't have obsidian. So there, there's these longstanding trade routes that um, are integral to the survival of these seven associated tribes in the area. So these baskets, these invaluable baskets are part of a chunk of Southern, um, of the Sierra Nevada mountain range And in California history and shared history. So I can't explain in any, I have no words for it, holding, holding these baskets, retrieving these baskets and you feel the ancientness. They were here before me and they're going to be here long after me and collecting some of the redbud that was prepared. It takes two years to prepare some of these basket materials. So even retrieving the raw materials and acknowledging how and what those are going to become and who weaves them and who's taught to weave them. So there's seven associated tribes with the very popular, well-known Yosemite Valley. And being in Mariposa on the southern Sierra Miwok end, there is a shared cultural exchange for thousands and thousands and thousands of years with these, with these seven associated tribes, for example, in, you know, in Bishop territory, they had a ton of obsidian, but no grasses that grew for basketry. So there was trade routes established beginning of time to exchange these things. So when you're looking at a basket, to me, it's not just an isolated story or an isolated tribe's items or an isolated pocket in American history. This is shared history. This is shared tribal history. This is the history of the Sierra Nevada mountains, which were the first to be decimated by the gold rush. So there was very little intention in California to set up any reservation systems because America just finished um, the Mexican-American War, uh, You know, dealing with Spanish, reclaiming land. So with all the resources, and especially gold in California, it was paid genocide. The government paid militias to come down, capture, and kill natives. It, you were paid to enslave children. So in my mind, every single grass, every single basket, every single descendant, of these tribes is a miracle, is a, is a, you know, California Holocaust survivor. So holding these things is, you feel the resilience, you feel the ancientness, you feel all of these incredible energies coming from just a basket.
0: That's a very good explanation about that. Let's, let's talk about the traditional knowledge that People say it's lost, but you just talked about it still being there, very alive. Even how to care for the forest, the trees, the mountains, and water. And I know you said the the knowledge is in the basket and basically codified within that. So we, as the human race, is experiencing anthropogenic climate crisis. And this is where I think, Jennifer, a lot of that knowledge you talked about should be coming in from Native people of how, not just to prevent forest fires, but what led up to the symptoms that we're experiencing now, because it seems if we took care of the source, there would not be these symptoms of fire, because we're thinking only about humans. Well, I do know that a lot of knowledgeable, language-speaking Natives think of all life, not just the human factor here.
3: Well, I guess to me... The basket symbolizes water because the grasses grow from water. They symbolize um, caretaking with fire because a lot of these grasses grow better after control burns and the tribes knew this. But here where we are, we're dealing with um, United States Forest, Forestry Service, which is a government agency. We're dealing with Cal Fire, which is a state agency. So with when you're working with these agencies, things are slow to change. Um, And also indigenous knowledge is still looked at as non-scientific because it wasn't learned in their textbooks at fire school or whatever. But speaking to the fire chief who had 30 years of experience, he has never seen fire patterns the way that they experienced them. Usually they have some kind of idea of how fire will move based on the topography based on wind, they usually have some kind of heads up guesstimate on, on how to position themselves and the dry heat, the dry ground, the, (laughs) the lack of care for the land in the area, um, meaning maintenance and, and, you know, fire prevention measures on private properties. It exploded into an, quickly unmanageable vortex and it wasn't just fire it was heat these these concentrated amounts of heat i've seen melted pools of metal i mean this so this this is just beyond grass is burning this is creating a vortex of decimating heat levels through all these pockets um, up here in mariposa county
0: it's very interesting because I'm hearing Indigenous people's way of life in the Miwok in that area, but really the terminology that's missing from that is you you intended that, well, you did say it and alluded to this language is that there are spirits in that forest. There needed to be tending, tended to, and to me that because you live there, it's coming through. So without misunderstanding the energy of where we are and i think part of that is restoration but not the western style restoration restoration you know what i mean jen is that what we're what's more needed is the original thinking the original patterns laid down to really look at uh, you can control the burning through indigenous methods um but that all starts with ceremony does it not It absolutely does.
3: Um, Our giant sequoias that were on fire with the Washburn fire that started a little bit before this one, these sequoias are 3,000 years old, and these scenes don't germinate unless they're exposed to fire, right? Mm -hmm. So in ceremony is where we remove ourselves from this human body and start to make an attempt to understand and listen to that natural world. And if you are in a place like Yosemite or if you are in a place of a forest and you don't feel those spirits, if you don't feel that energy, if you can't hear the the little sweet messages and all the bird chirping and all the gossip that the crows bring, then you need to get yourself back into ceremony right. because they're from the insects from beneath the ground this starts to the top of the trees this starts and when you are an indigenous community living within the natural environment burning wasn't just for you and your safety burning was putting nutrients back in the soil Burning was clearing some of the weeds away so you'd get more grasses that grow. Burning made the Manzanita stronger. Burning brought back the sequoia trees. So when we look at control burns, it seems to be for us and our safety. But from all a right. tribal indigenous perspective, burning safely is for all the creatures.
0: And a Western view would say that it's it's bad and because humans can't play there anymore. They can't hike their trails and you know, their little campfires and take their little marshmallows to burn in the fire. But it's not it's not bad. I'm I'm hearing it's not bad for native people to do these, um, you know, replenish with this natural cycle of the forest anyway. So natural resource management, quote unquote, these terms that are coming up for really saying, well. What, why are we trying to manage nature when it already knows what it's doing in the first place?
3: Well, you say managing resources. Whose resources are you talking about managing? That's number one. You know, are you yeah. managing resources for campgrounds? Are you managing resources for local indigenous people to have access to the medicines and to all the things that are deeply embedded and woven not into their baskets, but into their culture and who they are?
0: Is there such thing as a fire expert? I I really don't get that. Are there fire experts that, you know, you can learn about in textbooks and go to climate school and all of a sudden you have the answer? Because the language that we're speaking, the cultures that we have are ways of seeing this world differently because we're involved in it. We're not using reality. We're living the reality of, quote, unquote, the ecosystem. I'm hearing through this all is that we're still adapting to the earth rather than the western style of adapting earth to our needs
3: bingo and we have we are not allowed to really have experts okay we have things like liaisons okay we're not oh. we are not given titles on the same par as the fire chief as county sheriff as you know we we get little titles like liaisons, these little bridges. Um, one of the tribal members, Irene Vasquez, that lost her home, actually has a degree in ecology and has been working with fire management in the park. Um, she was actually taken off the Washburn fire and sent, and sent home to try to protect her home and evacuate. So even within her GoFundMe While she does work for Yosemite Conservancy and was helping the park, she wasn't even allowed to put Yosemite in her GoFundMe because Yosemite got upset that the only reason you receive funds was because the word Yosemite. So here we have somebody dedicated to the land, master's degree educated, hardworking for years, dedicated to all of mankind, not just tribal, but keeping the park clear and beautiful for the tourists. Is still diminished, dismissed, and 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 knocked out of of, um even using the word of her homeland.
0: Incredible. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead.
3: No, you. I I just I'm I'm now I'm mad. So yes, you go ahead.
0: Yeah. That's the idea here to get everybody riled up. You know, like this is just not in California. It's everywhere. And the same plan is applied to Turtle Island if not the world but I'm talking with Jennifer Robin who's host of Resilience Radio and you can hear that and I think part of that is learning live radio is very human as human as it can get with natives living within the land that you are also living with so but it's just again this this honor of having you and this Resilience Radio out on the West Coast it feels like you're you're the the gate I wouldn't say gatekeeper, but you're a guardian of the voice out there, and it speaks through the, the forest, through the people. So I um, just want to honor you for that, Jennifer.
3: I I get uh, all blushed up, and it is an honor to talk to you because there are there are very few of us that do this every week. There are very few of us that have longstanding um, careers in indigenous, indigenous radio. And radio is just kind of a dying art on its own. So I feel like you and I are like one of the last five on a battlefield, you know, (laughs) but I'm proud to be in, I'm proud to be in this with you.
0: Oh, that's so good. You know, you, you did some field work up in Cannonball during a standing rock protest with that spirit radio with uh, Covinda. You were there, but, you were also in this fire too. It seems like to me, it's the like same kind of urgent energy going on. Because yes, we can define it and give it terms and measure the disaster that's happening to the land, especially when you're not living on it. We'll do GPS maps. We'll do you know data information as to how much is going to be lost in 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 millions and billions. But yet, it's there is no wisdom to all this information and technology unless you're experiencing it and I think that's what I'm hearing you say I haven't been on air for all these you know maybe a hundred years but yet it feels like the earth is still new still viable and she's adjusting she's going she's moving so fast we can't keep up with her Jennifer she's so Good. intelligent supposed to. that's right and and yet we want to with our science you know Western science well wondering we'll explain yet we're we're missing. It's like a generation gap, but I begin to understand that what happened to where's that gap? That's the gap we have with nature. There is a gap we don't understand anymore, and I think that is is coming through now by you places like you showed up in Standing Rock. People need to hear and i I want to beg the difference. I think radio is not dying I think it's it's under the the charred forest floor. You know. <laughs> It's ready. Well,
3: Standing Rock, Cannonball, and working with Govinda, that became more important to me because the news media was just blatantly lying. Right. Um, I, had a, I had a hotel room because of all my equipment and temperature and charging and, and things like that. So I would experience thousands and thousands and thousands of people on, in a community of all races, indigenous or not, And I would go back, and the news media at that time would say hundreds are gathered. Hundreds of Native Americans are gathered. No, honey, there's thousands of people gathered. The next Mm -hmm. day, just lie. I mean, the, the blatant lies that corporate media put out shocked me, which lit something inside me to just
0: tell the truth, to show the truth. And that's what's needed now, especially with the fires, is the same. Well, those fires, we don't hear anything about the fires here. Really don't. But I, you know, I was coming to the the apartment here and I got outside. I start smelling smoke. So it's apropos to I, I'm interviewing Jennifer Robin out there in California and I smell smoke because there's probably fires that we don't even we're not aware of, let alone indigenous peoples there knowing already how to take care and and let the fires manage us because we know where to go within the land. Now we just plan you know, blueprints of, you know, here we're gonna build a city and there a town and you know, without ever understanding the land and the contours that are within our bodies as indigenous folks. So, you know, I, I really wanna, you know, hold you up out there and talk about Jennifer Robin Moore and Resilience Radio because that's what's gonna oh. take. Yeah. Really.
3: Well, you know, and and even too, there's these little Hoofs of oh indigenous burning oh let's learn about this but then when the indigenous people get together to do cleanup burns and to do controlled burns in their way on their lands permit 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 get this guy call this guy permit 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 and by the time all these permits are done it's raining again and we've lost another summer quite maddening when people, it, it feels like they're fake caring in a way. And maybe that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's probably not true, but it feels dismissive and it feels bottom of the barrel. So to have the sheriff's department and the fire department so quickly jump into action to help with at least these baskets, with at least this tiny pocket that I had mm-hmm. a, a minuscule control over is makes me think there's progress, right? Makes me Makes me feel a little bit better about the community I'm in, but it's moving forward now as we get to the end of the summer and as we start preparing for next summer. How much of that indigenous knowledge will Cal Fire and the USGS absorb?
0: Well, well, uh, Jennifer, we have to go. I thank you for. We always have to go. I know, isn't that nuts? It's like okay, time's up. Time's up. We can't just sit. We just need
3: to talk more. We just need to talk more off air, right? Like get it out and then do an interview.
0: <laughs> we're gentrifying information, our information, our knowledge and gentrifying it so that they can understand us in a language that just is so restricted. It will never understand where we're coming from. And I think that's what the conscious, their conscience tells them because they can't do with consciousness. You, you see where I'm going with that? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's that conscious- why I appreciate
3: you. Because you, you, are, you better articulate these experiences and these situations than I ever could, right? You bring it to the consciousness level, the bigger picture level, the human level. Whereas I'm just sitting here kicking things and grunting because I don't have the words to articulate my feelings towards some of these situations and agencies. So I appreciate you uh, for helping me get this out my body. Well, and as we celebrate triumphs as well, I'm going to fill you in on, you know, it's not all just tragedy and hardship and wow, we're natives and the the government's mean, you know, there's so much beauty and resilience and comeback stories that, that deserve some airtime. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me and I look forward to our future conversations.
0: Thanks, Jennifer. Take care of
3: yourself. I feel like saying, I love
0: you. All right. And welcome back to First Voices Radio. My name is Tiokazin Ghost Horse and and this is Soja from the album Peace in a Time of War. This is a Revolution.
2: us be be superior to others in some part of
0: Doug George Ganatia was born and raised at the Mohawk Territory of Akwesasne and he attended school on and near the reservation before enrolling at Syracuse University and then the Antioch School of Law. Doug was a co-founder of the Native American Journalists Association before serving the Mohawk Nation as editor of the journals Akwesasne Notes and Indian Time. He worked with the late Vine Deloria Jr. on the traditional knowledge conferences before joining the board of trustees for the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. And Doug is vice president of the Hiawatha Institute for Indigenous Knowledge, a non-profit higher learning facility that is based on Iroquois principles. He resides on Oneida, Iroquois territory. And I want to talk to you, Doug, about that you were one of the 22 Native people asked to meet with him privately, but you turned it down. You turned a photo op down with the pope and you yes. declined it. In, in a good way, that people understood why you did. I know previously, a yeah. few months ago, we talked about the, uh, what an apology really means. Tell us why you were even selected as one of the 22 Native people to meet with the Pope.
4: Yeah, well, our uh, Iroquois people, people, or Mohawk people, have always uh, been uh, rather demonstrative and forceful and uh, outspoken in our defense of our indigenous heritage and collectively uh, uh, addressing issues that are of of deep common concern to all native people and one of the things that of course we share in common with our our kinfolk across the continent was displacement in the uh, forcible taking of literally tens of thousands of native people native children and placing them into to uh, these residential boarding schools in a deliberate attempt to eradicate uh, their heritage. Uh, Well, over the past couple of years, uh, we've taken the lead in locating the possible burial sites for the children, identifying uh, their physical remains, and then initiating a very aggressive repatriation uh, initiative. Along those lines, what we've decided to do is we we made sure that the Mohawk residential school where I was assigned when I was 11 years old, uh, was a crime scene And that afforded us additional protection and gave us access to forensic uh, investigators, uh, criminal uh, crime scene investigators, police and all the apparatus that comes with that. and. Uh, now we're using contemporary technologies to locate uh, burial sites, and it's the same technology that the uh, Ukrainian government is using to locate uh, mass burials of uh, uh, citizens and, uh, who were shot or executed or died at the hands of the Russians, and then in an attempt to obscure those graves. Uh, well, the same thing happened at residential school. Schools. There was a deliberate attempt to obscure where the children are buried. So what we're doing is we're establishing historical uh, policies and procedures to do that. But it makes a lot of people uncomfortable because we have said repeatedly, uh, the people at Oshiwambo Six Nations and our Mohawk people, that we we will not accept any apology from any entity, uh, whether it's the papacy or the federal government or individuals unless there's an an acknowledgement that crimes were committed against children and children were uh, suffered up to the point of their death either by malnutrition, sickness or physical abuse in that uh, uh, people need to take absolute responsibility for this. Um, That was always our position in that once that was done, then you could discuss um, uh, truth and then reconciliation based upon our terms as survivors. Now up to this point, uh, we were not uh, as Iroquois people involved in the formation of those uh, government policies and we're changing that. So our theme uh, is that nothing for us without us. And that makes again, a lot of native people outside of the Confederacy very uncomfortable uh, because we don't believe in forgiveness unless there's something that makes us whole again, that restores our our good spirits and things. That's a position we took. And I think that's why people were reluctant to have us speak to the Pope. But I made a bit of a fuss. And uh, I said, uh, we at least had the opportunity to tell the Pope why we rejected uh, his apology. As a kind of a concession, they agreed that I would be one of the 22 that would meet privately with the Pope in um, Quebec City. And then I would have my opportunity to uh, bring up these issues. Well, um, I learned uh, on Friday morning that uh, last week, when before the meeting, that we were only gonna be um, given one minute to <laughs> summarize all of this. And that was simply impossible. Uh, there was no way we could affect change that we thought was necessary within the papacy for one minute. And so I said, uh, I can't do this. It's a disservice to the uh, Mohawk uh, children who are victims. It's a disservice to our community. And I could not accept a uh, a photo opportunity with the Pope uh, based on those conditions. So I, uh, I turned them down. I said, no,
0: can't do it. Talk about based on those conditions where you rejected an apology without justice. Of course, it's their time, they're dictating to you how much of 500 years would be put into one minute. That's impossible, of course. Also, you said something about establishing this historical protocol, this mourning that we have been doing since then. But you also said maybe an endorsement of absolution without admission of guilt. In canonical law,
4: uh, dating back to the times of the Crusades, uh, the Church would grant absolution uh, absolution to the uh, those people who went on those Crusades and were involved in extreme acts of violence, outright uh, um, murder and uh, destruction of uh, the homes of indigenous people in that area. And uh, before they would even commit a crime, he would say, "You're already absolved. Uh, don't worry about it. Uh, you have a free hand." in that uh, there can be no criminal act brought upon you uh, once you've been granted this uh, dispensation by the Roman Catholic Church. Well, the same thing here is that if we engage in the acceptance of an apology uh, without acknowledgement of guilt, then the Church will see that as absolution and that they can evade their lawful duties and obligations towards us. They can continue to prevent us from seeing the records that's necessary for us to answer the basic question of how many kids were stolen. And what happened to them, the church has those records and it involves hundreds and hundreds of Iroquois Mohawk children, who up to this point are unaccounted for. And that's what we saw happening when he went out west to visit with the people out there. And uh, they were talking, you know, some of those native leaders about this was an uh, uh, act of absolute uh, forgiveness. And that's simply incorrect. It, we can't forgive without restoration. And uh, that's why we took that, that hard-line position. And I would have stood in front of the Pope and said, we acknowledge what, your words. However, uh, we, as, as Haudenosaunee people at like Mohawk people, reject them unless there's a viable commitment to secure justice for the victims of the church. And it wasn't just one individual, this was institutionalized. And people should remember that uh, he was speaking from a script whenever he did these presentations in Alberta and Nunavut uh, in Quebec City, it was all scripted. But when he got on the plane to go back to Rome in answer to some questions, he did acknowledge that what happened to native people was genocide, but qualified. The church. He did not acknowledge that the church was involved in genocide. And so once again, a little bit of evasiveness. And then when it comes to the doctrine of discovery, which is you got to understand that to understand the whole boarding school system, because what it did, it get them gave them the legal basis to take the kids because they were under God's directive, uh, uh, commanded to uh, convert us to. Uh, Catholic Christian way of, of thinking, and, and we would have uh, asked him to revise that, to rescind that, uh, and then once that was done formally, um, then we could, it would revolutionize the whole um, American Indian law, whether it's treaty law or, or uh, territorial rights or jurisdiction or sovereignty, all of that will change dramatically when the Pope says the doctrine of discovery is formally rescinded, then the Canadian-American government has to find another way to deal with this. And they have to withdraw their, uh, their banned and tribal council system. So it gives us an opportunity to restore a traditional government governance. Uh,
0: Doug George, also, you know, you talk about restoration and maybe uh-huh. reparation and all that stuff. So. What would that look like if they actually did rescind the papal bulls' doctrine of discovery? They seem yeah. to be still in the um, performance mode right now, as I would say, with the evasiveness yeah. and also the definitely the denial uh, language they're using. But what would happen if something just, you know, they said, "Okay, we well, let's get it over with. Let's rescind this doctrine." Yeah. What would happen? Yeah. Give us, give us thoughts. Well, here on Akazesne,
4: because it's the most complex, uh, jurisdictional, uh, uh, confused area in North America, because uh, as most people know, our community lies astride the border. We have three existing councils, two of which are colonial. And we have all these various policing agencies watching uh, over us, everything from the FBI to the uh, Border Patrol and the Canadian CVSA and the RCMP. They're all focused on our small community. That's all the elements of colonialism in its most extreme. What it would do for us specifically as Mohawks, it would enable our community to finally say there's no basis on which to uh, have these uh, these band and tribal council systems on our community. It removes whatever rationale the states or the provinces have for imposing those systems on us. Uh, because doctrine does say that... Uh, does give the uh, Christian power specific powers, uh, authority when it comes to jurisdiction uh, on our our and it has been cited. Probably the most blatant example was in 2005 when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled uh, that the doctrine applied to Iroquois territory, and that it gave the Christians the right to assume ultimate jurisdiction over our land. The odd thing about it is that opinion was re- was written by Ruth. Bader ginsburg a jewish woman whose ancestors were being kicked out of spain at the exact same time in the same port as cristobal colan or columbus was leaving uh, to arrive on turtle island and that was cited and it has been replicated in canadian um, uh, judicial proceedings as well so anybody that says that it was somehow qualified over the centuries is wrong it's still a viable part of our judicial um, nightmare here in our mohawk community so what it really does is it return it has to return our territory all 26 million acres back to the status as being under the possession of indigenous people and it re- and it will give us an opportunity finally to unite uh, our under under one administration that's what we think will happen you know, put an end to those Supreme Court rulings and any claim the Supreme Court has over uh, our peoples, the latest of which was announced in June when they said that uh, the states had a right to enforce criminal law on non natives on our territory. I mean, that's a disastrous ruling, and it's based on this doctrine the assumption that they somehow, based on their Christian uh, background, have supreme authority over Aboriginal people. This could revolutionize everything. It could change border crossing rights. It could affect trade and commerce and governance and, and culture as well. So if we can get them to do that, then then, uh, then that um, miracle uh, will, will truly take,
0: take hold in our, our communities. Well, Doug, George, Conatillo, kind of Thank you so much. Yeah. It just, it's good. I know you were only given a minute with the Pope and you turned that down, <laughs> no. but, it, but here we yeah. explained it in, oh, well, we still need more time, but we explained yeah, it we in do. basically 25 yeah. minutes, but it's yeah. good to hear you again and honor you for being who you are and keeping yeah. that, that integrity going, that honesty. And because it is after all about the land and thank you so much.
4: Okay, you can imagine what would have happened if I had gone to Quebec City and put a Mohawk headdress of Gastel on top of the <laughs> <laughs> that.
0: That's another thing we could talk about. But yeah, Exile,
4: Exile from,
0: from the- <laughs> Sure. That's, the <laughs> that's that's so funny. So, but hey, Fair thank one. you, Doug. Thanks, uh, man. Okay, um, we'll, we'll talk soon. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. Bye. All right. about this song i just played bullet the blue sky in 1985 amnesty international brought along the band u Bano, where he stayed with a group of guerrillas in the mountains of the north country of el salvador and the song talks about foreign policy especially pre-nafta promoting unrest of indigenous peoples original consciousness with earth which is not pledged to a flag of consumerism nafta being the North American Free Trade Agreement, which runs roughshod over anything indigenous and even past treaties for the safety and the security to flaunt capitalism and derision toward those who do not want destruction of Earth cultures protecting the lands. It's sad to hear, but expectant, that celebrities often sell out to the flame of fame and eventually the misfortune of egoism and anthropocentricity. And the main players in this game? Canada. And the United States. I do this so that others may live, especially the earth. Learn how to live with the earth and not take from the earth. This is Teokasen Ghost Horse. I am Mi Ghost Horse. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio.